welcome to the Hogan Lovells Brexit podcast. I'm Susan Bright, the firm's managing partner for the UK and Africa and leader of our Brexit task force. As you can imagine, Brexit has somewhat taken over my work life since the UK voted to leave the EU back in June 2016. Since then, we've been doing a lot of thinking about what Brexit will mean for our clients, for businesses, for the UK, for the EU and for the rest of the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was part of our Navigating the Negotiations webinar series, which we've been running throughout 2017. You can find the slides that accompany the webinar and much, much more about Brexit on our hub at hoganlovells.com forward slash Brexit. We hope you find this podcast useful. Please do rate, review and subscribe. It helps others to find the podcast and make sure that you know when our next episode is released. Hello everyone and welcome. My name is Susan Bright, Managing Partner for the UK and Africa at Hogan Lovells and leader of our Brexit Task Force. This is the fifth webinar in our series, Navigating the Negotiations. Today we're going to look at transition. How does the UK move from being a member of the EU to having a different relationship with the EU, described by Theresa May in her letter to Donald Tusk back in March, triggering the Article 50 negotiation period as a new deep and special partnership. Today I'm joined by other members of the Hogan Lovells Brexit Task Force. Charles Brasted and Andrew Eaton who are in our public law and policy team. Peter Watts who leads our commercial law team and Rachel Kent who leads our financial services team. So we're nearly 18 months on from the referendum and we're still in the first phase of negotiations. So far, there are no concrete outcomes. Businesses tell us that they can't wait until the last moment without early clarity on what Brexit means and how we get there. Businesses will have to act to adapt so that they can continue to operate whatever the outcome. What businesses tell us that they need is timely clarity about what they're facing and when, or what in previous uh, webinars we've called a glide path. This is all about making sure uncertainty doesn't drive outcomes. So I'm going to start by turning to Charles and ask him why, after 18 months, is there still so much uncertainty? Um, well, I, I suppose some people would say there's a lot of uncertainty uh, because the negotiations aren't going very well or very quickly. Um, that may or may not be right, um, but what is, what is also true, I think, is that there are a number of structural reasons for the current uncertainty and why that persists. Point one, then, for me is that, uh, and as you'll see on the slide, there are a number of things that we are trying to resolve simultaneously. Setting aside the question of transition itself, the subject of this webinar, there's the terms of our withdrawal uh, more broadly. There's the future relationship between the UK and the EU. There's uh, the future trading position of the UK with the rest of the world. And there is the question in the UK of the domestic implementation of all of that in parallel. That, of course, means that there is a very complex interlocking set of issues to try and resolve simultaneously through a number of different processes. 
that of itself gives rise to uncertainty. But it is more than that. It is also about the process that is being followed. And I think th this week, or perhaps even today, provides a pretty good snapshot of uh, the key issues. What, if we look at today's headlines, what do we learn? We learn that uh, Michelle Barney and David Davis will this afternoon confirm that the latest round of negotiations have ended with no breakthrough. Um, that sort of announcement is barely news anymore. Uh, what it means is that those negotiations are, as Susan, you mentioned, still very much focused on the basic withdrawal terms, not yet moving on to any other issues, including whether that is the transition arrangements or the future relationship itself. Although we do understand that the EU has begun work on what they call scoping out options for the next phase. Uh, what else do we see in the headlines uh, today and this week? Uh, well, we, we hear about the withdrawal bill. That is the UK domestic implementation aspect of all of this. Uh, and today's headline is Theresa May's uh, announcement that the date of Brexit will be hardwired into that as the 29th of March 2019. And we can come back in a moment to what that really means. Um, we've also had the announcement this week of the trade bill. Uh, and on this morning's Today programme and probably elsewhere since, we've had Lord Carr, the uh, author of Article 50, um, explaining very vigorously um, his view uh, that it is capable, uh, our Article 50, UK's Article 50 notice, is capable of being revoked unilaterally at any time. Uh, so let me just take some of those points in turn to explain the uncertainty. On the withdrawal bill, there is a widespread consensus, I think, that there needs to be a legislative mechanism to implement Brexit, and that that requires some flexibility within it to reflect the fast-moving deal as it happens. But scrutiny over all of that is highly controversial, hence the repeated delays in that bill coming back before Parliament. But beyond that issue of scrutiny, there are also a swathe of amendments uh, proposed to that bill um, seeking to give Parliament what people would broadly describe as a meaningful say over the outcome of negotiations, something that Theresa May has promised, but it is unclear how that is delivered and how a meaningful say in Parliament at the end of the negotiation process would fit with the nature of Article 50, which on its face provides a default outcome of out on the 29th of March 2019 with or without a deal. No deal means we leave, full stop. Um, now, as I mentioned, Lord Carr, the author of Article 50, has said that unilateral revocation, in his view, pr provides no legal or political difficulty. Um, I think there is much to base on whether it's legally possible. What is clear is that there is political controversy with that suggestion. The Commission disagree. The European Parliament has passed a resolution stating that that is not correct. Um, a legal challenge in Ireland seeking to show that revocation is possible was abandoned, and only the CJEU, ironically, could resolve the issue. Theresa May has sought to square that circle, perhaps, by committing to Brexit Day in the domestic legislation itself. But we don't know what that domestic legislation will provide happens on Brexit Day it will clearly have to take account of any transitional agreement as yet unknown. 
So there's a clear political message there that any transition period post-Brexit will be with the UK formally outside the EU. But of course, that is a political message coming from Theresa May and applies only for, for so long as she remains. We know that the EU is planning actively for the collapse of the current government and a possible consequent delay of Brexit. All of that is a good indicator of the level of uncertainty and where it comes from. Um, alongside that, we have the trade issues mentioned on this slide. This week, we have had two developments on that front. One is increasing positive noises uh, asserted from the US, from Australia, from Malaysia uh, about their interest in doing a trade deal with the UK, although somewhat notably, Australia and Malaysia, two of the countries who are looking for new trade partners, the US having uh, pulled out of uh, discussions on the uh, Pacific deal. Um, of course, we cannot do trade deals at the moment in the UK because we remain a member. And what we see from the trade bill published this week is that that is very much part of the withdrawal bill approach to continuity. It makes no provision for a future global trading platform. It is about implementing the first stage of continuity post-Brexit. So that's what's going on. One very quick point about the structure of the negotiations. The reality is Article 50 is not designed to give early certainty. It envisages an agreement at the end of a process of a negotiation with no mechanism before then for baking in agreed issues. That reflects the negotiating approach of most negotiating parties, certainly the EU classically, that nothing is agreed until everything's agreed. That's an approach the EU has vigorously embraced in relation to Article 50 on this occasion, reflected in the Commission mandate, which is expressly phased, and as Susan says, we're still only in phase one, and they are using that phasing vigorously, if I can put it neutrally, um, with the suggestion just yesterday uh, that the EU will start shaking the tree for businesses to move out of the UK if a deal on money is not done soon. So in all of this context, there have been very positive no noises from both sides about the need for transition from the Florence speech and thereafter. But as we will discuss in a bit more detail today, what people mean by transition, what they're trying to achieve by it, and when they need it, are not necessarily aligned. So, why did we call this webinar Lost in Transition? This slide hopefully illustrates why it's so easy for the debate to get tangled and confused, because effectively it's like thinking about a four-dimensional game of snakes and ladders. What I want to do now before we get into some of the detail is to try to unpick a little bit of the confusion to help to illustrate how, although there are many interwoven themes here, if you can pick them apart and see a way through, you can start to focus on what matters to you and your specific business. And then my colleagues will expand on each of those core themes. There's a big challenge in that the word transition is being used to describe a whole range of different concepts. There's a genuine debate about the appropriate approach to each of the separate concepts. But unless we're clear which concept we're talking about and when, the debate very quickly becomes confused. 
And for businesses, this has two important practical implications. Firstly, efforts to influence the outcome by engaging with the political process are much more likely to be successful if you can clearly articulate your priorities simply. There's a real danger that making out a case on transition will fail to get traction with politicians if they aren't clear which aspect of transition you're speaking to. And secondly, we are, as Charles has just explained well, in the midst of a very dynamic political process. And there's unavoidable uncertainty around Brexit. So to maximize and track an understanding of how the process is really developing, and so what steps to take within each individual business, it's important to unpick the various threads when people talk about transition. Those so are four dimensions, and I'll take these in no particular order. Firstly, there are a number of fundamentally different things that will change as a result of Brexit. Charles touched on some of them. Most obviously, there's the UK's relationship with the EU, but there's also potentially significant changes to the UK's own domestic legal and regulatory system. And as the UK ceases to be part of the EU's trading bloc, the UK's relationship with other countries. Each of these needs to be addressed in different ways, and it each raises different questions and challenges. For example, simply put, the UK could enact some change to its own domestic legal system without any agreement with anyone else. It may not be the optimal one, but they could. But by contrast, anything but the most, uh, the most disruptive transition of the UK-EU relationship will require at least some form of agreement. The second dimension is about the destination for which a transition is designed. And this is an area in which language can get particularly confused. The most obvious meaning of a transition, and that perhaps we hear from the Commission most often, is that of a bridge to a known destination. You know where you're starting, and you know with a fair degree of detail where you plan to finish, and transition is simply the steps to take you from A to B. But in the Brexit context, things are not necessarily this simple, and there are at least two other potential destinations that people have in mind. Transition sometimes being used as a description of a potential arrangement by which, although the ultimate destination and time of arrival are known with at least some outline certainty, the detail of what both will look like is going to be developed through the transition process. In this version of transition, the UK and the EU agree to a broad concept, but not the detail of a future relationship, and give themselves a period to work out what the detail actually means. And the third meaning of this type of transition is simply more time in this phase of the process. That's more time to work out even the most general destination. The third transition concept is one of purely of means, something Charles will particularly deal with more shortly. In essence, even if you know what you're trying to achieve, how can it be done? I'm not going to try to deal with any, any of the technical issues right now, but suffice it to say, they don't, they don't exist in isolation from the politics, a further complicating factor. As a simple example, we might arrive at a conclusion that the best technical form of transition was to extend the UK's membership of the EU, or extend the period of the Article 50 notice. But that's not just a technical decision, it's an intensely political one. And finally, it's important to understand the different rhetorical uses of the phrase transition. As is often the case with rhetoric, these issues are often independent from any precise practical meaning 
and often the user doesn't really think through exactly the detail of what they're intended to convey. But nonetheless, different rhetorical uses are important because in the political debate, they mean different people are using the word transition to describe fundamentally different concepts. So, for example, when the EU talks about transition, it's been clear it can only have a meaning once a permanent end-state relationship has been agreed. The UK government, by contrast, often uses transition simply to describe the process of leaving the EU with no particular view as to where that might be going to. For business, on the other hand, the essence of talking about transition is to provide certainty right now and for the foreseeable future. As we see it, there are three potential models to help achieve an orderly transition from membership of the EU to a new relationship with the EU. And in reality, we may need a combination of all three. Taking planned transition first, if the UK and EU agree the future relationship before the UK leaves, as is still the hope of Theresa May, and therefore all government and businesses need is time to make changes to implement the terms of that new relationship, this could be achieved by a planned transition. This is what Theresa May refers to as her implementation phase, sometimes also referred to as the bridge to the future relationship. This model could be considered the only true transitional arrangement because it is the only one which, in which the UK is actively moving from the old arrangement to the new. Everyone knows where we're going, and it's just a case of doing what needs to be done to prepare for it, whether that's establishing a new UK customs authority or for a business securing necessary regulatory clearance under a new regime. Next, interim arrangement. If, as seems more likely, we don't yet know the future relationship uh, by the time we leave, what we need is an interim arrangement to tide us over until we reach uh, agreement on the future relationship. In other words, a stopgap that avoids us falling off the cliff edge prior to agreeing that future relationship. This arrangement would be backward-looking in the sense that it does not need to cater to the UK's future direction of travel. Instead, it seeks to maintain the status quo as much as possible while still making sure that the UK has left the EU. It is not and cannot be the same as EU membership. So the contents of such an arrangement would need to be negotiated, which of course takes time. On one view, any arrangement uh, like this would be necessary at some point in the process, as it's the only way to allow the UK legally to negotiate and conclude trade deals with the EU and possibly other countries, which the UK cannot currently do while it is a member of the EU. Finally, continued membership. You might think this doesn't sound like a transitional arrangement at all. That's because it's not. What it would provide is more time, which is essential, which could be essential for ensuring a smooth transition or a glide path. The most pressing issue for businesses right now is not what the terms of the new relationship or transitional arrangement are to be, but to ensure that they are given sufficient advance notice of what those arrangements are, whatever they may be, before they come into effect. In other words, this is all about timing. How much advance notice a business needs to prepare its own affairs will depend on the individual business concerned. In effect, each business has its own Brexit decision day which is the last day to press the button on contingency plans before it's too late to get the house in order before Brexit occurs. As Charles said, the government plans to enshrine the 29th of March 2019 in the EU withdrawal bill as the day the UK leaves the EU. If the 29th of March 
2019 is to be the date the UK leaves. Uh, the, the, Brexit, the Brexit decision date for certain businesses may in fact be one year in advance, say, so the coming March next year. If March next year, or whenever an individual business's Brexit decision day is in practice, comes and goes, without transitional arrangements being agreed with sufficient legal certainty, the only option for those businesses will be to initiate contingency plans for the worst case scenario. Every day leading up to the point of no return for those businesses is one less day to plan for change. Any transitional arrangements agreed by the EU and the UK after that date, even the most comprehensive arrangement that avoids a cliff edge and ensures frictionless access to the single market without free movement of people or CJU jurisdiction, would be too late. Uh, especially for those businesses who moved, who have already moved parts of their business to Frankfurt, Paris, and Amsterdam, or have made other changes that are too costly to undo. That's why, for these businesses, extending the Article 50 period, in other words, delaying Brexit, may in practice be the only way to ensure that the UK and EU have sufficient time to put in place the appropriate interim arrangement or planned transition for their individual point of no return. Talking about transition arrangements confuses things because different people mean different things by it. It's better to say exactly what we mean. What many businesses are telling us that they need right now is more time, clarity about what the new arrangements will be with sufficient time to adapt their businesses to operate within those new arrangements. Thank you, Andrew. Um, as, as Andrew said, um, the starting point for the legal question here is, of course, Article 50. Um, and what that does uh, is provide very clearly a mechanism for extension of the negotiating period by unanimity of member states acting in council. What Article 50 doesn't do is make any express mention of transition arrangements although it does refer to the mandatory relevance of the future relationship or at least the framework for it. Nevertheless, it is, I think, common ground, at least between the Commission and the UK government, that transitional arrangements could be agreed within the Article 50 negotiations, although unclear whether as part of the withdrawal agreement itself and or as a separate agreement. The European Council has said that transition arrangements can be discussed as part of the next phase of negotiations, if and when we get there. The question, though, is, assuming that mere comfort or warm words from both sides are not enough for all businesses, how do you give sufficient legal effect to agreement on transition arrangements at an early stage or at a sufficiently early stage? That is the crucial question. That could be by agreeing a transition agreement under Article 50 very soon, or it may have to be by some other legal mechanism. We've already talked about Article 50. Let me say a little bit about other legal mechanisms. We see broadly three categories of other mechanisms that might be available. Those are international agreements between the UK and the EU entered into outside the Article 50 mechanism. Secondly, 
what's described as parallel sources, which is in the absence of a formal legal agreement between the two sides, a political commitment put into practice in law on both sides of the channel through separate legal mechanisms. So, for example, an EU regulation or decision on one side and an act of parliament, for example, on the other. And thirdly, what I with some hesitation call the David Cameron style deal. Um, and we can come back to talk about what that is, but essentially the rather complex and novel set of arrangements that he negotiated uh, prior to the Brexit referendum without in political terms success, but with some legal success in how it was put together. Could that be used in conjunction with other mechanisms to secure, for example, clarity on transition arrangements before the withdrawal agreement is finalized and comes into effect, or to tweak the terms of the continuing membership? So let's just focus for a moment on that, that David Cameron-style deal. The way that worked was a commission decision and a statement of heads of state and governments plus five legal declarations. It wasn't, as a composite document, binding EU treaty, nor was it EU law in itself. But most legal commentators at the time uh, considered that the decision amounted to a binding treaty under international law, which effectively amounted to an international law enforceable agreement in future to agree and take certain steps. And it was regarded in international law as being binding on that plane because the parties intended it. What it didn't do, of course, was bind EU institutions or domestic institutions as a matter of EU or domestic law. And it may have raised, had it been pursued, may have raised issues if it were found to be inconsistent with EU law, uh, and that was looked at by the CJU. But it does provide a model, albeit very complex, for putting together a solution in the absence of a clear legal agreement that comes into effect. So those are roughly the mechanisms that are out there. Let me say a little bit about how they might uh, allow one of those three models uh, to, uh, to be implemented. And again, I think the real question here is not just whether these legal mechanisms could deliver an end result, but how, if at all, they can give adequate signal or certainty in a timely fashion. And that really comes down to either pushing out the relevant date or baking in some sort of agreement. So taking those three um, models, uh, continued membership, interim arrangement, planned transition that, that we, we've just outlined, and I, I think it's fair to say that those are really a, on a gradient of degrees of dynamism from a static continuation to a transitional period that truly moves you uh, from one place to another during its term. Continued membership. There are three ways, potentially, or two ways of doing it with one tweak. Um, you can revoke the Article 50 notice. We've already talked a little bit about the extent to which that's legally possible. Um, it's probably uh, not, not much value in going further into the question of how legally, uh, politically deliverable that is at the moment. All of that could, of course, change. We've also talked about the possibility of extending the Article 50 period 
where there is a clear legal mechanism in Article 50 to do that, but it needs unanimity. And of course, it doesn't provide a transition as such. It merely buys time. And then you might build on to that what I was talking about in terms of the Cameron-type deal, whether there are some tweaks around the edges of continued membership that would support the exit process without taking us out of the EU completely. For example, some flexibility for us to pursue trade deals, including with the EU, uh, whilst remaining a member. So that's continued membership with or without tweaks. Interim arrangements and planned transition are really variants of the same sort of legal model, um, whatever that is. That, the, the central legal case, I suppose, is that that would be included in a withdrawal agreement. That is what it appears both the UK government and the EU envisage. But the problem with that is timing. The answer to timing is either we do a deal quickly, very quickly, or we have to find another way of giving sufficient legal certainty in the meantime. So can we do a transition deal as part of a withdrawal agreement quickly? Well, first, the negotiations would need to move on from withdrawal terms, not just money, that isn't just money, but it's also about things like the Northern Ireland border, very difficult issues. The negotiations would need to move on from that to the question of transition. We would need to agree an interim period which embeds continuity, at least in key areas. But we would need to do that seemingly from a political perspective on Theresa May's part, with the UK out of the European Union, a Brexit Day a commitment. And we would need to address, as part of that interim period, a number of issues such as trade. None of that is simple, um, and that raises the difficulty of whether it can be negotiated meaningfully in the time available. If that is given a legal effect as an Article 50 withdrawal agreement, that then needs to go through a ratification process. Um, and there's a question that I think is unanswered legally at the moment, which if the Article 50 mechanism has been used to reach an agreement on transition, say, is Article 50 then done and dusted? We can't use that for a, we can't take it in stages and have a number of Article 50 agreements going through that mechanism. That seems to be uh, what Article 50 implies, and that means any arrangement we agree in the next few months would need to build into it the framework for doing the rest of the deal. If we can't do that, then we're looking at a separate agreement, which EU lawyers would certainly say can't happen until after we have left the EU, or we're back to the parallel sources and other legal mechanisms that I just talked about. I think, so in conclusion on mechanisms, it seems to me that without timely agreement on transition in early 2018, the current trajectory of negotiations suggests a cliffhanger. The EU and UK are edging towards an agreement in principle. Those are words they have used. That is unlikely to be sufficiently clear or sufficiently certain for many. Any other means of achieving a glide path outcome require changes in approach and priorities as a matter of urgency, including changes to the European Council mandate of the Commission. There is scope for binding decisions of heads of state and governments and other legal 
legal niceties to put together a complicated legal setup that provides some additional certainty, it is unclear whether that would be enough. But the simplest means right now of preserving the possibility of a glide path is to extend the Article 50 period. That's simplest from a legal perspective. Politics, of course, may not say the same thing. And a mere extension does not of itself provide a resolution. Thank you, Charles. I was struck by your use of the terms quick and certain. And to give a particular industry example of why a transition that is both quick and indeed certain is important, we need look no further than the financial services industry. The context here, of course, is that international financial institutions rely on a passport to avoid having to get regulated in all relevant EU jurisdictions in which they operate. But as we know, on Brexit, the passport will automatically cease uh, in the absence of some other arrangement being agreed. In that situation, firms will need to establish an entity elsewhere in the EU, get it authorised, transfer business to it with the potential for staff moves and potentially large client repapering exercises that that might involve. This is, of course, likely to be both costly and, of course, to result in increased capital requirements when implemented. But there is a possible solution. As some of you know, at Hogan Lovells, we have been working with the City of London and the IRSG and, indeed, uh, many financial institutions across the piece to produce a blueprint for a trade agreement which will include an alternative to passporting. This proposal seems to have got traction in both the UK and the EU, and we are hopeful of a deal. So what is the problem for financial institutions? To be certain that businesses can operate in the EU following Brexit, they're likely to have to commit to their relocation plans sometime in advance of March 2019, some say by the end of the year. The difficulty is that we are unlikely to know by then whether a deal will be done to extend passporting. The risks of getting it wrong if no deal is done are high, potentially the commission of criminal, a criminal offence in the conduct of a regulated activity without sufficient and appropriate authorisation. On the other hand, if a deal is done, any relocation costs will have been unnecessary. So businesses really are in something of a catch-22 situation. So what is it financial institutions need? I think three things. They need confirmation that they do not need to press the button on their relocation plans until we know whether ultimately that will turn out to be necessary. That com confirmation must be certain as I said, the risks of getting that wrong are high. And finally, it does indeed have to be quick. Businesses need something soon, much sooner indeed than March 2019. So whereas businesses are indeed hoping for the best, they have no option but to prepare for the worst with all the costs that that entails. Thank you, Rachel, and thank you for that. Uh... Uh, admirable clarity as to what the financial services industry needs. I think that feeds 
uh, very much into the final point that I wanted to make, um, which really starts with something Peter said earlier on. He talked about rhetoric. Uh, and I think from what little I learned about rhetoric, there are times when ambiguity has its place. Uh, ambiguity has certainly had its place in these negotiations. Um, I say uh, now is the time to end the ambiguity on transition. Indeed, I suggest that we should stop saying the word transition and start saying what we really mean. And what I mean by that is we need to say what we need. We need to unpick the talk of transition. Are we talking about an implementation period? Are we asking for more time? Are we asking for a signal or confirmation, as Rachel put it, that we don't need to uh, begin contingency plans coming into action? And if the latter, which is certainly the case, as we have heard, for financial services, and no doubt will be for many other businesses, how clear does that signal need to be? For some, there is a need for legal certainty about where the cliff edge is or that it won't be reached. Does that mean you need certainty as to every rock on the cliff edge or not? Um, so to take Rachel's example, if the primary concern is the loss of passporting and the criminal uh, sanctions that may arise from that, would legal certainty on that specific point or a number of specific points without an across-the-piece certainty on the whole future be sufficient? And could that be achieved by some form of binding commitments as to how regulatory uh, enforcement on both sides of the channel would take place in an interim or transitional period. For others, um, there is an easier, in some ways, risk-based approach uh, for businesses to take, where what they are principally concerned with is business disruption of the sort that often arises from political risk and that they are used to managing. Their businesses may be looking for degrees of comfort and transparency but don't need certainty. And that, I suspect, is something that Peter will come on to say a little bit about when talking about practical steps that businesses can take to manage those risks. But I think that we need to be clear at that sort of granular level what we need from the negotiating parties. And to the extent we can, we need to help them find the legal solutions, which may have to be creative, to get the certainty that's needed at the point where it is needed. So to draw the strands together, I think we've established a little bit more, a little clearer where we are. Back in the summer, uh, just after the general election, we outlined three alternative scenarios we saw could unwind Brexit. Uh, a glide path where some form of arrangement was reached to provide businesses with certainty in the medium term whilst the detail was worked out. What we described as the cliffhanger, that's the scenario in which negotiations go up to the 11th hour and the 59th minute of the 11th hour before Brexit day, but some solution is reached, and the cliff edge where no solution is reached uh, and we disappear into the unknown. I don't propose to go through those in detail. You can find the detailed analysis of those on our Brexit hub. 
but it's fair to say that in June we indicated that we felt that if there was not a significant move towards at least an interim period of confidence, the position would be relatively unchanged whilst the detail was put in place. By around the end of this calendar year, we would be heading towards a position where businesses had to start to assume they were on the right-hand side of this scale. And it's fairly clear that we have drifted somewhat in that direction. So in that context, and drawing together what has been said uh, so far on this uh, webinar, the first point is to reiterate that in articulating key messages, business need to focus on being very precise as to what their needs are and what their expectations are on a transition. And then there are a series of practical steps that every business can start to take now as the risk of uncertainty perhaps grows. It's important to bear in mind that uncertainty is not just an enemy, it can also be a friend if you can turn it to your advantage. On this slide, we've just summarized a small number of thoughts in terms of every relationship that every business has. I won't go through it in detail. Again, you can find the analysis on our Brexit Hub. But to summarize, when you're doing business with anyone else, you need to think about how Brexit ready are they, whether you're doing a long-term deal or you're doing just a one-off. You need to understand whether they have proper preparedness in place. You also need to think about what the impact of changes to the free movement of people will be on the businesses that you are dealing with. Do they understand the impact and have they communicated that to you? And have you managed the indirect impact? Thirdly, one of the biggest areas of impact we have heard from business is on the movement of data between the UK and the rest of the EU. Again, it's important not just to understand your own position, but also the position of everyone you do business with. Are you, in effect, relying upon a flexible supply chain for data, which might dry up if the outcome of Brexit is, uh, is adverse? A lot of time is spent, and Rachel touched on some of the specifics in the financial services industry, on the regu regulatory implications of Brexit, whether the rules will change, whether pan-European networks of rules will be impacted. Again, these are things which won't just impact your own business, they'll also impact businesses that you are working with. Do they understand what regulations are applying to them? Do you understand how that could affect what you are doing with them? Do you have clauses in your contracts that mean that if there's a change of regulation, the agreements will change? the pricing will change and you will be bearing the risk. It's essential to check that. And finally, I think one of the most unnoticed potential implications of Brexit, that's on the systems that every business relies on. Every business has accounting systems, has enterprise planning systems, has systems that plan the movement of goods and services and data and people around them. All of those movements will change. There will be new points of tax. There will be new points of record. All Every business's systems <clears throat> will need to be uh, reviewed and analyzed. It is a common place that any systems review 
takes longer than you think it will. And certainly at a time when everybody who understands how those systems worked is being pulled in every direction, you're likely to find it gets very expensive and very difficult to get your systems in the right place for Brexit if you start late on. So if you take nothing else away from this uh, webinar, start thinking about are you managing changes to your systems right now? Peter, thank you. So just to finish, um, a reminder that for further help and guidance, do please visit our dedicated Brexit hub at hagenlevels.com forward slash Brexit. This contains all of our latest thinking on the legal issues surrounding Brexit. You can also sign up if you wish for one of our regular Brexit bulletin emails on the hub using the button which is at the bottom of the page. We will be holding further webinars in this series, so please look out for future communications. Finally, as always, if you want to discuss how Brexit might impact your business and how you can best prepare, then do please get in touch with one of us by contacting a member of the Brexit Task Force, or you can use the email address brexit at hoganlovels.com. So to finish, thank you, Rachel, Charles. Andrew and Peter for joining me. And thank you to all of you for listening. Do join us next time.